Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Nobody can accuse us of rushing through the book of Romans. Uh, but as we mentioned last time, we have finished Paul's opening salutation and his personal introduction of himself and his ministry, which covered verses 1 to 15. We also looked at verses 16 and 17, which set forth the theme and thesis of this epistle. And then last week, we entered into the main uh, body of the book of Romans that runs from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 15, verse 13. Now, that's made up of five different uh, headings. And the first section uh, is from uh, Romans 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, and falls under the heading of condemnation. Condemnation, because in it, Paul wants to prove that the whole world apart from Christ is condemned by God. Guys, condemnation is a judicial uh, term denoting that fallen man is guilty before a holy, righteous God of violating his laws and as such is condemned or sentenced to spend eternity in hell for his crimes or mankind's crimes against God. That is why Paul begins uh, this section with the words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who are ungodly, verse 18. And then this section ends with the words, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. That's chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, guys, here Paul is acting like a prosecuting, prosecuting attorney who starts by proving that the pagan, the ungodly, is condemned or guilty before God. He then moves to the moralist to show that those who think they're right with God because they live quote-unquote moral lives are hypocrites and guilty. And then finally he turns his focus to the religionist, which in this case are those who embrace Judaism, to show that keeping the law of God or practicing religion won't save a person either. The verdict, all apart from Christ, are guilty and condemned. That brings us to the end of this first section, which is 118 through 320. Now, why is it so important that Paul begins the main body of this epistle by proving the whole world apart from Jesus is condemned? Well, as we said last week, it's important because before people will see their need for a Savior, they must first be made to see themselves as guilty sinners. And that's why Paul starts this section with the phrase, the wrath of God, verse 18. I mean, think about it. The bad news has to come before the good news. In fact, it's the bad news that prepares our hearts for the good news. The bad news is that we are all fallen sinners, infected with the terminal disease of sin, and yet, most people don't realize they've been infected with this disease. Let's put it this way. Say you have a, a very serious physical disease that if left untreated will kill you. And yet you didn't realize you were infected with this disease. And say I recognize the symptoms that you have because I too was once infected with that same disease. And so imagine I came to you and I told you that I had a cure for the disease that you have been infected with, a miracle cure, the only one 
in the entire world that will heal you. You'd probably say to me something along the lines, get lost. I don't have a disease. I feel fine. You know, when it comes to bad news, most people tend to live in denial anyways. But as long as you were convinced that you were healthy, well, you wouldn't appreciate the cure I was offering you because, again, in your mind, you wouldn't see your need for it. But now let's imagine that I began to tell you some of the symptoms of this disease. And as I began to share the symptoms with you, you began to think to yourself, I do have those symptoms. If I could eventually convince you that you were in fact infected with this deadly disease, <laughs> then how do you think you would appreciate the cure I was offering? I mean, you line up for hours or even days or do whatever it takes to get your hands on this miracle cure. And yet when it comes to a cure for sin, most people in our culture are ambivalent at best when you try to tell them that they've been infected with the disease of sin and the only cure is the blood of Jesus Christ applied by faith. Again, the problem is that most people don't feel sick. They don't feel they have a problem. They can't feel the wrath of God abiding on them, right? John 3:36. Why is that? Because they'll tell you I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I do, you know, fill in the blank. I help out the local food pantry. Uh, you know, um, I help little old ladies across the street. I never pull the wings off of butterflies. I'm a good guy. <laughs> Besides all that, look at how my life is being blessed by God. God doesn't bless sinners. I'm being blessed. That proves I'm fine. Me and God are good. We often, people often confuse material uh, things as blessings from God. Maybe they are. Often they're not. They're often sent our way by the devil to keep us preoccupied and away from God. But the casual observer says, oh, look at all these wonderful material things I've got. Certainly God's blessing my life. Not necessarily. A lot of people do not want to hear about the gospel because they don't think there's a problem. They don't realize the extent of the disease of sin and how it's ravaging their lives, plenty of red flags, and how it eventually will take their life and destroy them in hell forever. But listen, just like a doctor can only help those who realize they're sick and seek help, so too Jesus, the great physician, can only help those who know they're sinners and therefore in need of a Savior. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Let me read you something along these lines, something that happened while Jesus was ministering on the earth. Mark 2, starting with verse 15. Now the background is Levi, or Matthew, has just gotten saved. Matthew was a tax collector. They were notorious crooks, extortioners, and so on. Uh, but Matthew is now saved. Now what, what do you want to do, or what did you want to do when you first got saved? You wanted to share Jesus with your friends and family, right? So Matthew throws a little luncheon for all of his tax-collecting buddies. That's the background. Now what happened as he, Jesus, was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, 
they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now you understand what he's saying here. He's not saying that the scribes and Pharisees were righteous, healthy, spiritually speaking, and didn't need him, the great physician. What he was saying is people will only seek out a doctor if they know there's a problem. Well, overt sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, all these folks, they knew they were sinners. And so when they heard Jesus offering forgiveness, salvation, by believing in him, they flocked to him. Of course, this incensed the religious folks, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on. Because in their minds, first of all, these people were irredeemable. And secondly, any self-respecting prophet would never have anything to do with people like this. But Jesus said, these are the very people I've come to seek and to save. They know they're sick. They know they need a spiritual physician. They come to me looking for me to forgive them. Look, you guys think you're righteous. As long as you think you're righteous, you'll, you'll have no need of a Savior. And that was the point he was making. It's the symptoms, though, that, in this case, symptoms of sin that drew people to Jesus and he received them, forgave them, and gave to them eternal life. Look, some of you guys know this, but 23 years ago, I suffered a heart attack. I was blessed by God for the simple reason that many people don't survive their first heart attack. Too many people with heart disease never know they have a problem until it's too late. They say heart disease is a silent killer, by that they mean there's often no warning signs and therefore no reason to see a doctor unless the attack happens and then you see a doctor if you survive it. It's the symptoms that let you know you're sick and in need of medical attention. Without the symptoms, guys, a person can have advanced heart disease and be completely unaware of it until it takes their life. It's not that people wouldn't see a doctor if they knew there was a problem. Oftentimes, they just don't know there's a problem before it's too late. And so let me say it again. There is a disease that has infected the human race. It's not a physical disease, although it has physical ramifications. It's not really a physical disease. It's a spiritual disease. It's the disease of sin. It's also deadly. Only it doesn't just kill the body. It also kills the soul forever. It's called the second death which is hell, which is eternal. The whole human race has been infected by this disease, and it is 100% fatal, eternally fatal. Again, the problem is that most people today don't realize they have this deadly, deadly disease, or if they do recognize that they're sinners, they don't think it's a big deal. Our, well, the devil, working in our culture for years, has worked very hard to make sin a joke. When you laugh at sin, it diminishes its seriousness in your mind. You would never laugh at something that was truly dangerous. But if the devil can make you think it's really not dangerous, 
It's kind of funny. Well, then he's going to diminish your response to it, make you think it's no big deal. So even people today that acknowledge they're sinners, I've talked to them, will often say something along the lines, well, I know I'm not perfect, acknowledging they're sinners. But I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. See, they don't realize what... They, they ignore the warning signs because they don't take sin seriously. You say, well, what are the warning signs? You're talking about symptoms. What are the warning signs or symptoms of sin that I should be or a person should be on guard against? I was thinking about that. And I, I believe the Lord led me to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. You take those fruits of the Spirit and reverse each one of them. Take the opposite. Not that any one sinner is going to manifest all the opposites, but if you have enough of them, these are warning signs. Something's not right. Now, people try to compensate, uh, you know, joy. I have no joy, but I'll drink my joy into my life, or I'll pop pills to make myself joyful. This is a counterfeit joy. You realize that. There's a lot of things the devil does to counteract or counterfeit the fruits of the Spirit, but it's just, it's artificial. It leads to greater bondage, right? But if you look at those fruits of the Spirit and then take the opposite of each one, this is what sinners, apart from Jesus Christ, what they manifest in their lives. These are warning signs. These are symptoms. There's a problem. They're not right with God. So they ignore the warning signs and don't seek help from Jesus, the great physician. And this is why Paul starts with the bad news that mankind, again, is infected with a deadly disease called sin, which means they're guilty before God uh, and are, are on their way to hell. That's the bad news. You get somebody to uh, embrace that. If you can witness to somebody and you bring them to the point where they understand what the bad news really is and where it's leading, oh my goodness, they're wide open for the good news. Is there any hope? Yes, there certainly is. That hope is in Jesus Christ. The good news, or what we call the gospel, is that there is a cure for the disease of sin, but one cure only. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul lays out the bad news in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, before giving us the good news in Romans 3, 21, to chapter 5, verse 21. So, let's start with the bad news, okay? Verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. First of all, to understand the wrath of God from a biblical standpoint, we need to understand that Paul is talking about divine wrath, God's anger, which is not the same as human wrath or human anger. Guys, let me just say this. Don't ever look at God's anger as when he is punishing sin and accuse him of doing something unrighteous. Even when God is angry, even when he's bringing judgment, it is always the right response of his absolute holiness and justice. Whenever we fall into the trap of saying, I don't know, God, I don't think you were right on this one, mark it down, you're in the wrong. Because God is never wrong. God is never unrighteous. 
John says, in him is light. He is light, and in, in him there is no what? Darkness at all. There's no moral imperfection. There's no sin at all. A big part of the problem in understanding God's anger is in trying to understand it by, listen, imposing our concept of anger on God. But again, his anger is not like human anger or wrath. There are two main words for wrath in the New Testament. The Greek words thumos and orge. Thumos is a red-hot, explosive anger. It comes from a root that means, a root in the Greek, that means to rush along fiercely. This relates to the kind of anger we exhibit when we, you know, fly off the handle and blow our cork, as we say. We get our English words thermometer and thermonuclear from that Greek word. Orge is the slow building of God's anger against sin. Sometimes over the centuries, the slow building of God's anger, like the pressure building in a volcano. The Greek word for wrath that Paul used here in verse 18 is the Greek word orge, a word that literally means to grow ripe for something. Implied it's growing. It doesn't happen immediately. In fact, you probably figured it out that we get our English word orgasm from this Greek word, which means it's not always associated with anger. Other things build to a point of some kind of, you know, climax or release. Now, in using the word orge in this context, Paul is telling us that God's wrath or anger towards sin isn't, is not the result of God flying off the handle as if he's some kind of divine hothead who once in a while throws a gigantic temper tantrum and just wipes a bunch of people out. No, he has been patiently restraining his anger over the centuries. Why? Well, Peter tells us why in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise? His promise to judge sin. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. In other words, God doesn't care about sin. If he really cared about sin, he would have brought judgment already. Be careful. A lot of folks make that jump in reasoning that either God doesn't care how I'm living, because look, it, I haven't been punished yet, or, this is worse, he approves. He approves. I've seen... I saw one pastor on TV who said that abortion was from God. And he was praising the act of abortion as being consistent with God's character. That's not just saying God is looking the other way when I say no. It's saying God's alongside of me, clapping me on when I say. Guys, in one sense, God's anger towards sin has been building ever since he brought the first worldwide judgment on the human race, the flood. The second and final worldwide judgment is coming, and has been coming for a long time, a judgment that is recorded in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. We call it the tribulation period. But listen, the wrath of God that Paul speaks of in Romans 8, uh, 1 verse 18 is more than just the wrath that is going to be poured out on the world, on the wicked during the tribulation period, 
or even on the day of judgment as recorded in uh, Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment. What we read here in Romans 1.18 takes those into consideration but are not exclusively what Paul's talking about. Well, how do you know that? Well, because Paul uses a, a present rather than a future tense verb. He said the wrath of God is revealed or the Greek is, is being revealed and not will someday be revealed like the tribulation period. In other words, Paul is telling us that the wrath of God has been revealed, listen, many times from heaven in the past and continues to be revealed in the present. What do I mean? Let me show you. The wrath of God was revealed in the flood. We just mentioned that. The wrath of God was revealed when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The wrath of God was revealed at Mount Sinai when 3,000 perished for worshiping the golden calf. It was revealed when God destroyed Nadab and Abihu for offering God profane fire. It was revealed in the captivity of the northern kingdom, how they were taken captive to Assyria, and about 100 years later revealed again through the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah when they were taken, captivity, taken captives to Babylon. It was revealed when Jesus cleansed the temple. It was revealed when Ananias and Sapphira lied to God and he struck both of them dead. Listen to me. It continues to be revealed upon America. A nation that has turned its back on God and God's wrath and judgment is being revealed in the chaos, the corruption, the confusion, and the decline of our nation that we are seeing happen right before our very eyes. Some people say, you think God's going to judge America, folks? He is judging America. Let's get that through our heads. Can we stop it? Maybe. Hopefully. Praying. Repenting. Asking God for mercy. But it's not guaranteed. This was... The same was true when Israel turned its back on God and he revealed his judgment upon them through the various prophets. Turn to Isaiah. I want to show you something. Guys, this is one of literally dozens and dozens of verses you'll find in the major and minor prophets about how God was foretelling about coming judgment or what he was doing that was manifesting his judgment upon his people and other nations. If you read the prophets, it wasn't just God's pronouncement of judgment upon uh, Israel and Judah. He pronounced judgment on Egypt and Syria, Assyria, Babylon, many other nations that had uh, turned their backs on God. I thought this was interesting. I mean, I could have picked any one of a number of verses. You can read the prophets yourselves and see these things emerge. Um, but this one caught my eyes uh, last week in my uh, morning devotions. And um, as I read this, I thought, good Lord, God, this is what we are seeing in America. Let me read it to you out of the NLT. Isaiah 3. I don't know if I told you to turn to Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3. And let's read verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 9. Remember now, God is talking about judgment that has already started, but it's going to reach fruition 
soon. Notice what he says here. I thought this was fascinating. Verse 4, I will make boys their leaders and toddlers their rulers. When God is judging a nation, he allows leaders that are immature, childish. They're not mature at all. They're reckless. They're feckless. They have no wisdom. But that can't be us. Right? I will make, in other words, children rule over them. Wow. Verse 5, people will, will oppress each other. Wow. Man against man, neighbor against neighbor. Young people will insult their elders, and vulgar people will sneer at the honorable. Breakdown of society. Verse 8. For Jerusalem will stumble and Judah will fall. You can plug in any city and any country into that. You could say for Chicago, New York, Detroit, L.A., San Francisco will stumble. And Judah, the nation, America, will fall. Because they speak out against the Lord and refuse to obey him. They provoke him to his face with their gay pride parades and their you know drag queen story hours to kids verse 9 they the very look on their faces gives them away arrogant smug defiant self-righteous that's our nation they display their sin like the people of sodom they're proud they're displaying it they're not hiding it. There was a time when people would sin in secret under the cloak of darkness, not when a nation has gotten to the point of judgment. They display their sin like people of Sodom. They don't even try to hide it. They are doomed. They have brought destruction upon themselves. You can read the rest of it. Now, that was Judah and Jerusalem. We hope that Chicago and America, it's not too late for us to repent. Let me tell you this, guys, because it fits in this whole section. All throughout man's existence upon the earth, God has erected warning signs along the highway of human history warning us about God's anger towards sin. And even though God is very gracious and often withholds his judgment against sin because he is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, sometimes the show is that he still, he is, uh, that, um, he is still holy and righteous, a God who hates sin and has the divine right to punish sin at any time he chooses. He will make an example of some like he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you read Acts 5, you read the story. There was a, a famine in Jerusalem and around the suburbs. And people needed help. And so the church mobilized. Anybody that had an extra house that they had purchased or some land, they were selling these things, taking the money and giving it to the apostles. 
Not that they were mandated to do so. This was a free will offering. They wanted to help. So Ananias and Sapphira had some property. They sold it, and they brought only part of the money and gave it to the apostles and kept some of it back for themselves. Peter, the Holy Spirit, revealed to Peter what they had done. And Peter said, and first of all, it was um, Ananias, and then later Sapphira came in. She was somewhere shopping or whatever. I don't know. So Ananias comes in, and Peter says to him, Ananias, did you sell your property for such and such an amount? Oh, yes. Look, we didn't tell you to sell your property. And even after you sold it, nobody told you you have to give us the money. But because you lied to the Holy Spirit, God is going to strike you now, and he fell down dead right there. About three hours later, Sapphira comes in. Peter asks her the same questions. She says, oh, yes, we sold it for that amount, what we gave you. I can't believe that you both conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit. The feet of the young men that carried your husband out will carry you out now. And she fell dead on the spot. When people read that story in Acts 5, they often want to find fault with God. They say things like, why did God kill them? Why did they have to die for something so minor as lying to God? Who hasn't lied to God? First of all, the question itself betrays a profound misunderstanding when it comes to sin. That there are large sins and small sins. And as long as you stay away from the big ones, you can indulge yourself in all the little minor sins you want. Because God doesn't care. It's no big deal. Quickly, turn over to Revelation 21. I'll show you what a kind of a deal it is. In Revelation 21, it's talking about those who were cast into the lake of fire, hell. Look at verse 8. But the cowardly, I'm sorry, it's talking, it was earlier talking about those who would be in the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem. But here's what happens to the ungodly, unbelievers, sinners, who never repented to receive Jesus as their Savior. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. Well, those folks belong in hell. We'd all say amen. They belong there. And all liars. Uh-oh. All liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Folks, when it comes to Ananias and Sapphira, the real question is not why, not why, not why did they have to die. The real question is why does God let the rest of us live? My pastor used to talk about how there was a time in the church when they sang a particular hymn, and one of the lines of the hymn was, "Take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold." That's a big lie. If God was really judging people today like he did in Ananias and Sapphira's day, there'd be dead bodies in every church across America that sang that song. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite will I withhold from you, Lord. Oh, right. Yeah. Why did God have to kill Ananias and Sapphira? Why does God let the rest of us live? Look. I want to say this to you. All you got to do is look at Calvary's cross. 
to see how much a holy, righteous God hates him and how he poured out his full fury upon Jesus, who took our place, died, died in our place, right? Paid our penalty so that we could be spared the judgment that we deserved. And not only that, after Jesus took our penalty, God then offered us to become his children and to live in his kingdom forever. Some people want to find fault with God because he punishes sin. Years ago, I read uh, a, an author who said, whatever you think about a God that punishes sin, he took his own medicine. He took his own medicine. There's a story that I heard years ago. I believe it's a true story. The, uh, the pastor that told it is a good man, and he told it as if it was a true story. So I'll share it with you. I, I don't know how long ago it happened, but it happened either in Central or South America. I forgot which one. But there was a tribe down there that had a king, a chieftain, that ruled over this tribe. And this tribe, in the middle of their village, had a communal chicken coop. People would put chickens in there, and then they would, it would be doled out to the whole community, these chickens. One day it came to the king's attention that somebody was stealing chickens. So the king made an announcement that this is a serious crime. You must stop immediately stealing from the community's food supply. Well, a few days later, the king got word again that more chickens had been stolen. He put out an even tougher warning. Look, this is getting serious. You need to stop this immediately, whoever you are. It happened again, and at this time the king said, when the person is found that has committed these crimes, they're going to have to be have to endure 30 lashes. Well, a few days later, the thief was caught. It was the chieftain's own mother. Now people were wanting to see how the chief, how the king would handle this. Would he give his mother a pass because she was his mom, elderly, frail little woman? Or would he impose the sentence upon her that she deserved, although they knew she would never survive 30 lashes? It would kill her. So the king set a date when his mother would be brought before him. On that date, he was sitting on the judgment seat wearing his royal robes. He was king and judge of this tribe. His mother was brought before him. He questioned her about these crimes, and she admitted she was the guilty party. Now, everyone was waiting to see what he would do now. And the king declared, you must be given 30 lashes. And he told his braves to tie her to the whipping post. People knew she was never going to survive. As the braves had tied her to the whipping post, before they started administering the punishment, the king rose from the judgment seat, 
put off his royal robes, exposing his bare torso. He walked over to that whipping pose and he put his arms around his mother, shielding her, and told his braves to go ahead and deliver the 30 lashes as justice demanded. That's our king. That's exactly what he did for us. A holy, righteous God who has to punish sin. There's no two ways around it. He cannot look the other way. He can't sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there. He is a righteous king and he has to punish judgment. He has to punish sin with judgment. And what did he do? After he declared the human race guilty in the Garden of Eden, at one point he became one of us, came to the earth and he wrapped himself around fallen mankind and was whipped and beaten and crucified for us. Right? Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was beaten for our iniquities, bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement that brought us peace with God was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. Every one of us are like sheep that have gone astray. We have every one turned in our rebellion to our own way. But God has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the penalty of us all. Look, guys, I know it's not easy. And a lot of pastors, they just cannot teach about wrath and judgment. They just feel it's counterproductive to bringing people to Jesus. It scares them away. Why would I want to do that? I want to focus on the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Those are wonderful attributes. Let me tell you something. And we're taking a lesson from probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. I'm excluding Jesus, of course. Paul the Apostle. This is what he did. He starts with judgment. Because, guys, without preaching the wrath of God, you diminish the love of God. Pure and simple. If you keep telling people that God loves them, maybe they start thinking, well, I'm worthy of his love. Right? If I'm worthy of his love, maybe I deserve heaven. Remember the parable Jesus told the Pharisee? There were two men in Israel. One owed a certain creditor, what, 50 denarii? Something like that, memory. And another owed him 500 denarii. Neither could repay. And so he forgave both their debt. Which one do you think would love him more? Pharisee said, well, I... I suppose the one he forgave more. That's right. When I came into your house, you gave me no water to wash my feet. But this woman who came in, fell at Jesus' feet, and began to wash his feet with her tears and dried them, his feet, with her, with her hair, she has not ceased washing and kissing my feet since the time I came in. I came in. Though her sins are many, they are forgiven, for she loved much. For whoever uh, is forgiven much, loves much. We do a disservice to people when we try to only focus on the positive. When they come to church and we're only placating and pampering and telling them how wonderful they are, how much God loves them, without talking about their sin or the wrath of God, we're not doing them any favors because all that positive self-talk 
is giving them the idea that they're pretty good people. I deserve God's judgment. Excuse me, I deserve God's forgiveness. The first was actually right. I deserve God's forgiveness. I deserve heaven. I'm a good person. But when we tell people the honest, brutal, excuse me, brutal truth that they are fallen sinners upon which the wrath of God is abiding. As Jonathan Edwards says, sinners are walking, in, are, are walking an icy plank over the pit of hell, and at any moment their foot could slip and they would fall headlong into eternal destruction. You don't hear that too much anymore today, do you? No, the marquees of churches say, God loves you. Come in and let's have coffee. Again, without preaching the wrath of God, you diminish the love of God. Without telling people that they're sinners and God hates sin with a fury and passion, but loves and has to bring judgment on sinners unless they repent and come to Christ, then he can forgive them. Only then do you realize how much God does love them or how much God loves you, right? Um, let's go on. Paul says in verse 18 that this wrath is revealed against, listen, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The first denotes not having a right relationship with God. That's ungodliness. The second, not having a right relationship with your fellow man. That's unrighteousness. What's in view here, guys, of the two tables or two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments? The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship to our fellow man. Now, some would say at this point, why is God so angry with these people? Why does his wrath burn so hot against them? Maybe they don't know any better in how they're living. Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This opens up the entire next section in chapter 1 from verses 19 through, 30, through 32 and leads to the conclusion of Paul in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man. The word suppress comes from a Greek word that refers to a helmsman on a ship using a rudder to steer a ship against the current. In other words, the truth of God is like a current that should naturally carry us along in the direction towards God and away from sin. But ungodly people are determined to hold the rudder of their lives against the current, in other words, against the undeniable evidence of God's existence, and steer in the opposite direction, away from God and towards sin. The idea being that even unbelievers have God's laws written in their hearts, which is why they have to exert pressure and willpower to suppress what they know is right in their desire to live unrighteous lives it's not that they don't know what's right god has written his laws in their hearts every person innately knows right from wrong it's not that unbelievers don't know what's right 
they know it and want to suppress it because they want to live unrighteously, is the idea. Turn to Romans chapter 2. You're in the neighborhood. Look at verse 14, 14 through 16. For when Gentiles, unbelievers, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, the law of God, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There is a day that's coming when people are going to stand before God and they're not going to be able to plead ignorance. Now Paul's going to develop that as we move along now. It's a very important section. Uh, by the time we're done, you're going to see that everybody is without excuse for good reasons. Nobody can plead ignorance. I didn't know God. Because if you're a Jew, you have the law. But if you're a Gentile, an unbeliever, you still have the law, not written in stone, but on the fleshly tablets of your heart. People will know innately right from wrong. How? Well, God has given them a conscience to sound the alarm when they violate something that he said was wrong to do. We'll talk about that more as we go. But listen, as a pastor, one of the questions I have been asked from time to time is, what about the poor native in Africa? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've heard this. What about the poor native in Africa or the aborigine in the outback of Australia who has never heard about Jesus Christ? Is it fair that God sends that person to hell? The following section in Romans answers that question. Let's read verses 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Guys, this is called natural or general revelation, which is God's disclosure of himself in creation. I won't have you turn there, you know it. Psalm 19, I'll just read the first three verses. Where David said, The heavens, or the universe, declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the sky, shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now guys, this is important because Christianity claims to be a revealed truth. A revealed truth. A revelation is something that has been made known to us by God. Something, listen, something we could not know apart from God revealing it to us. When we talk about revelations for God, there are, from God, there are two uh, kinds. Again, natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation, once again, is God's revelation of himself in Scripture. You can read, you get this from different places in the Bible my favorite is Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. Special revelation is God's revelation of himself in Scripture. Natural revelation gives us knowledge about God in general. You can look out into the creation and know that there is a God out there who made this. He's obviously very powerful. He's a God that seems to love 
beauty in color because it's everywhere. Whereas with special revelation, God gets up close and personal with us by introducing himself to us, telling us his name, telling us what he loves, what he hates, how we can know him personally, etc. These are things that natural revelation, things found in creation, can't tell us about him. We can know general things about God from the creation, but we can't know anything specific. Here in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul isn't dealing with special revelation. He's talking about natural revelation. Let me end with this, and we'll use this to set up next week's study. But in these two verses, Paul is talking about natural, or general, as the theologians call it, general revelation. God's revelation of himself through creation. And Paul is telling us that although natural revelation is incomplete in its revelation of God, we don't know his name from natural revelation or anything about him personally. Paul is telling us that even though natural revelation is incomplete in its revelation of God, it nevertheless is such a clear revelation of God's existence that anyone who looks at the creation and rejects the existence of God is without excuse and God will hold them accountable on the day of judgment. Once again, guys, a revelation is something that is made known to us by God. It is something that would be impossible for us to know through our own human logic or intelligence or thought processes. It is knowledge that comes through divine input. Very important. The Bible says that God is spirit. Spirits live in the supernatural realm, but can interact with those in the natural or physical realm, whereas human beings live in the physical realm but cannot interact with spirit beings in the supernatural realm. In other words, we who are physical are locked or trapped in the physical realm. And because man is physical and God is spirit, there is no way a physical human being trapped in a box we call the four-dimensional physical universe can poke a hole in that box, climb out and find God no matter how long you look at your belly button and say, um... Now, many would disagree with that statement because many people in the occult, they use techniques like visualization, transcendental meditation, tarot cards, Ouija boards, and other techniques to interact with the spirit realm. The Bible calls these practices divination and condemns and forbids them. Why? Because God knows that the devil... And his demons use these things to deceive people into thinking that they are crossing the barrier that separates the natural realm from the supernatural. But in reality, it's nothing more than the devil deceiving them into thinking that's what's going on so he can feed them false doctrine, lies, that will, if embraced, destroy them in hell forever. Well, he'll let you think that through meditation, visualization, You've crossed the barrier. And now you're coming in contact with, as some call it, ascended masters, white masters. These are spirits who are very wise. And I can glean all kinds of spiritual truth from. Devil lets you think that. But in reality, you are speaking to demons. 
who are masquerading as spirit beings that are good. And they will feed you and have fed many lies that if embraced will will and have damned people in hell forever. Remember that uh, verse out of um, Isaiah 8, 19, 20, 20, 21, something like that. Israel in those days was going to mediums. They had the word of God, but they didn't, you know, it was nothing to them. So they were going to mediums to find out spiritual truth. And at one point, God rebukes them. You can read it for yourself, Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. Why do you go to mediums to find spiritual truth? These people who whisper and mutter and have these dark sayings. and Should not a people seek their God? To the law and to the testimony. Get back to my word. If any so-called teacher of truth doesn't proclaim the truth in my word, it is because there is no light in them. They're of the devil. Many centuries ago, Job asked the, the rhetorical question, can a man by searching find God? Can we, through an intellectual quest or some kind of a spiritual quest, can a person trapped in the four-dimensional physical universe somehow transcend this realm, enter into the supernatural realm and find God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no. No. Can a man by searching, a woman by searching, find God? Absolutely not. As one pastor put it, he said, we can't expect the bug in the bottle to understand the little boy that put it there any more than we can expect the natural man with his natural capacities to understand the supernatural God unless that God chose to condescend and reveal himself to man, end quote. Yeah, it's called revelation. Of course, the greatest revelation was what? The incarnation. For 4,000 years, God was speaking through prophets and dreams and visions, feeding the human race glimpses of himself. But then God became a man and dwelt among us. The greatest revelation was the incarnation, where Jesus, God, became a man, walked among us, and not only taught us truth, he was the full disclosure of God's truth. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. As we said a moment ago here in Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul is dealing with the knowledge of God that comes through natural revelation, through the creation. And that's what we're going to pick up on next time. We're going to pick up on this next time because this is a very important thing, that we understand what Paul's saying. If we're going to be able to properly use these things in our witnessing to the lost. So come on back and we will continue uh, in Romans 1. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you so much, Lord, that you sent your Son to be the full revelation of your truth, of your person. When Jesus walked the earth, 
God in human form. People could hear the love in his voice. They could see the love in his eyes. They felt his arms wrap around them, telling them, God loves you. God wants to forgive you. Come to me. Put down the religion. And come to me and enter into a relationship with me by faith. And you shall be saved. You shall be forgiven. And you shall live with me in my kingdom forever. Lord, give us grace as we study this incredible book to, I don't know, I guess we'll never mine all the gems of truth in our lifetime, but give us grace, Lord, to uh, dig out the more obvious nuggets of truth that we need to embrace and understand, that we can be better lights in the darkness, greater witnesses to the lost. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.